Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the first in the Crossroads series of four lectures, each of which will illuminate some aspect of the intersection of the arts and sciences. The next event in the series is Music, Conservation, and the Environment with the Eki Ensemble. Please consult the uh, event schedule on the Athenaeum's website uh, for details and to make reservations. That the arts and sciences could be conceived of as meeting in some kind of orthogonal manner at a crossroads would, I think, come as a surprise to the founders of this institution. As I read the articles of incorporation, their view was that every serious intellectual pursuit had both scientific and artistic aspects. And indeed, these aspects were so intertwined and embedded in the pursuit of knowledge that to separate them was to render the pursuit little more than a wandering in flatland. There are numerous examples of the synergistic binding between these two magisteria throughout this building and throughout the Athenaeum's history. I'd like to call your attention to an example that is close at hand. It's the portrait of James Monroe by Samuel Morse hanging on the wall to your left. Uh, it's the one right on the left of the, uh, the statue. Morris was a prolific artist, as well as the founder and first president of the National Academy of Design in New York. He was also, as you may well know, received four patents in the 1840s for his invention of the electric telegraph. Nor was this his first patent. In 1817, at age 26, 25 years before he invented the telegraph, he and his brother, got a patent for a pump to be used on fire engines. Five years after that, at age 31, and it might be said about 200 years ahead of his time, Morris invented a 3D printer uh, that worked, by the way, in plastic and marble, not with plastic. Sadly, however, from his point of view, uh, Thomas Blanchard of Middlebury, Massachusetts, had received a patent for a similar machine two years earlier in 1820. So Morris did not get a patent for that invention. Nonetheless, it is not too far from the truth to say that art and science are the weft and warp of the best engineering. This evening's speaker, Dr. Laird Christensen, weaves together threads from the arts and sciences to create a tapestry of the road ahead. Dr. Christensen received his PhD in English literature from the University of Oregon. He is currently professor of English and Environmental Studies at Green Mountain College in Vermont. In addition to teaching American literature and directing the graduate program in resilient communities, Dr. Christensen, much like Samuel Morse, is a working artist writing poetry and singing in a Vermont string band. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Laird Christensen. Thank you very much. I learned so much just from listening to that, uh, and it's such an honor to be here tonight, so uh, thank you for inviting me. Uh, I realized uh, during the introduction that my title may be a tad misleading, so let me clarify that right away. Um, while I wanted to speak about the arts generally, that's not necessarily my expertise. My focus is on literature, so I'm thinking mostly about the narrative arts, but I have tried to weave in examples of visual arts, uh, 
performance art uh, through, the, through the slides that I'll be showing you to show you the ways in which artists more generally are trying to uh, communicate the reality of climate change as widely as possible. But if you're here hoping uh, to hear a lecture about art history, I'm afraid that I'm not really qualified to do that. So my apologies. The other thing that I should probably be clear about in my title is that there's an assumption here, the time of climate change, and that assumption is that climate change is real, that we are living in the time of climate change right now, and that it is uh, primarily uh, caused by human activities. So just as a way of setting that context up uh, in a little more detail, um, and I'm not going to go into uh, great detail about the science, uh, my friend Tony Lajewitz up at the Yale Center on Climate Change Communication, you'll hear actually quite a bit about him tonight. Uh, we went to graduate school together, and he probably has thought more about how we communicate about climate change than anybody that I know personally, and so I've, I've been in touch with him in preparing this talk tonight. But he makes the point that, while graphs and charts and, and the usual methods of conveying science are uh, important, they don't engage the whole person. And in fact, they probably don't engage the parts of the human mind that are more likely to convince people to take action. So I'm going to uh, bring up my, f my only graph right away. Uh, and we'll, we'll just get it out of the way right now. So a few of the, just the basic uh, assumptions that are going to come into play as we talk about some of the work being done in, in climate change communication. Uh, as most of you probably know, uh, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is a normal and in fact a very good thing. We wouldn't have life here on the planet if there wasn't some carbon dioxide in the atmosphere trapping that solar radiation that reflects off the earth and would otherwise head out into space. But you know what they say about too much of a good thing. Well, we have, uh, we have done uh, exactly that by pumping so much carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Actually, we're up to about 40 billion tons a year that it's creating problems right now. Now, the Earth's oceans and the forests can, uh, can absorb some of that, but only about 40% of that. So we have been building up the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere over a period of time. And uh, this, uh, this graph doesn't show the, the whole extent of that, but over the past 400,000 years, the levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere have never surpassed 300 parts per million. We surpassed that level in 1950. And last year, 2016, we surpassed 400 parts per million. We're in uncharted territory for the human species. So we're going to be talking about the way that artists try to convey to the general public the ramifications of that. Um, but very quickly, just to make uh, one more point, as you probably know by now, 2016 was the hottest year on record, surpassing 2015, which surpassed 2014 which surpassed 2013. And in fact, um, let me get this right, 15 of the 16 hottest years on record have occurred since the year 2000. The 16th was 1998. So we're certainly, uh, as I said, in uncharted territory. So how do we navigate the transition from the petroleum age? Think of, think of that in terms of capital P, capital A, the way that we talk about the Iron Age, the Bronze Age, the Stone Age. How do we navigate the transition from the petroleum age to whatever it is that we're going to end up calling what, whatever comes next? And how can the arts help us do that? Uh, some of my uh, doctoral research had to do with the way that uh, arts uh, 
can have an impact on the values, the ethics, the worldview of people. Uh, and I absolutely believe that, and I hope that you do too, because among other things, the arts allow us to experience things beyond our own day-to-day -day experiences. One of the great things about the narrative arts, in particular uh, fiction and film, is that it allows us to inhabit other people's lives and to imagine what the world might look like from that point of view, uh, also known as empathy. Uh, and I think that empathy is actually one of the strongest tools that we have in able to um, enable ourselves as a society to move beyond the, the point that we're at now. The recent elections suggest that we're not as good as we'd like to think in terms of empathizing uh, with our neighbors, especially those who, who happen to disagree with us. And I think that any solution has to point towards finding ways to understand the commonalities that exist between ourselves and those neighbors that we may happen to disagree with. <clears throat> so let's get into it. Um, as a Saudi oil minister famously said, and this quote has actually been repeated many of times, the Stone Age didn't end because we ran out of stones, right? The Petroleum Age does not need to end because we run out of petroleum. We can leave it in the ground, uh, as, as many activists these days are calling for us to do, because we have new technologies that are coming online much faster than many of us had expected. Uh, I spoke um, for a, a few minutes earlier uh, with Rich Rosen of the TELUS Institute, who's here. And I imagine that when the TELUS Institute uh, was, was founded back in the 70s, you didn't imagine uh, the level of te technology in terms of uh, alternative energy that we have today. Uh, and one of the most exciting things that I heard back from the folks who went to COP21 in Paris was the enthusiasm for people in business to move forward. There were so many opportunities available to move forward beyond the petroleum age. And despite what you may think of based on the, some of the appointments of the, the recent uh, administration, we have calls even from uh, some of the, the stalwarts in the Republican Party calling for a uh, carbon tax. The Climate Leadership Council includes uh, leaders from the last three Republican administrations, former Secretary of State James Baker, uh, former Treasury Secretary Henry Paulson, former Secretary of State George Shultz. These are the last three Republican administrations. We have these people calling for a carbon tax now. So, um, and we had 174 nations from around the world coming together in Paris last year, agreeing to, uh, to limit carbon emissions on a, uh, at a pace that may not have been as aggressive as some people would like, but still it was a remarkable moment, a demonstration of a shared commitment towards a more sustainable and resilient world. And, and resilient is the key word here. Um, resilience refers to the capacity of systems to continue functioning uh, without, uh, uh, despite disturbances, without losing their basic identity. And you know what, I'm forgetting to hit these. <laughs> let, me, uh, let me jump ahead now. Um, so uh, just this last week, uh, the same week that I read, oh, I'm sorry, uh, the same week that I read an uh, article about flooding in Miami uh, it has become the new normal, and some of you may have heard about the king tides in particular. Uh, I received a list of job postings uh, in my role as a director of a graduate program in resilient and sustainable communities from Miami-Dade County, and they were looking for several people uh, to, to work in this field, but especially um, folks with experience in analyzing and communicating impacts of climate change and sea level rise, 
and evaluating adaptation and resilience options to address impacts. And then there was a little note afterwards, certification as floodplain manager is highly preferred. Well, the world that we're moving into is going to create opportunities for a lot of people, not just for floodplain managers. And some of the, the, the people who began to think about uh, the opportunities ahead early on were the folks at the Global Scenario Group, of which the TELUS Institute uh, was, was one, of the, um, one of the founding uh, organizations. And what the Global Scenario Group is, is they laid out three possible scenarios for human civilization moving into the 21st century. Uh, conventional worlds, whereby uh, markets and policies could mitigate environmental disasters uh, and the social disruptions. Barbarization, scenario number two, in which adjustments prove inadequate uh, and we see the collapse of basic institutions and infrastructures. And the third is these transformative scenarios, such as the great transition. And this is where the, uh, the phrase in my title comes from, the global scenario group, the, the great transition which is a phrase that I have embraced, and, and I mentioned to Rich earlier that it seems to have gained currency beyond its initial usage. Because as we think about who we're going to become as a species, the more we can frame the challenges in terms of this remarkable time, this remarkable transitional period, a remarkable set of challenges, a remarkable set of opportunities, I think that creates sort of the narrative scenario for us to say, okay, we can, we, can, uh, we can rise to this challenge. Think about people in wartime, when people made efforts in their own lives, whether it was recycling metal or um, planting victory gardens. We need that kind of shared sense of responsibility at this point. And by framing the changes that, are, that, are, that have begun already in terms of the great transition. What will the next stage of human society look like? I think we have the opportunity to, to see what we're doing, even in our own lives, as heroic, even at that small scale. So we'll talk more about that in just a moment. Um, so in thinking about the role that the arts play in facilitating this transition, there are a number of ways of thinking about the role of arts in society. We can evaluate them in terms of uh, their mimetic um, uh, capacity, uh, in terms of their objective uh, uh, experience, um, in terms of the expressiveness of the artist. But the way that I'm interested in thinking about the arts uh, today is the pragmatic approach. And, and some of you may recognize these labels coming from M.H. Abrams and his classic study, The Mirror and the Lamp, uh, way back in the early 70s, that these are some of the ways of thinking about uh, art. But the pragmatic lens uh, of thinking about art uh, is interested in its ability to have a particular set of effects on the reader. It's not art for art's sake. It's art that creates action that creates emotional responses, that creates changed minds. So that's what I'm most interested in tonight. Uh, of course, uh, we have examples of art, and particularly narrative art, going all the way back to the oral traditions around the world, uh, to the great uh, uh, religious texts uh, in which we see stories teaching people 
values, teaching people ethics, putting people in situations where they're forced to come up with their own way of understanding their relationship to other people, their relationship to other species, their relationship uh, perhaps even to the entire world. So there are plenty of examples of art serving this function, but I want to think for just a minute about literature. And in fact, American literature, it's almost a characteristic of American literature uh, that art has had this effect. So now we finally get to this, to this slide, Uncle Tom's Cabin, uh, which uh, mobilized uh, abolitionist sentiment in the years coming up to the, um, to the Civil War and led, uh, led Abraham Lincoln uh, to supposedly make the acquaintance of Harriet Beecher Stowe with the phrase, so you're the little woman who wrote the book that made this great war. Uh, a book that... that um, is there, oh my gosh, I'm sorry. Uh, there we go. I, I have actually two uh, screens, one, one that's uh, what I'm seeing now and one that's uh, what's coming next. So uh, Harry Beecher Stowe's example being uh, one of the more famous ones. Uh, but we also have Upton Sinclair, whose publication of The Jungle led Theodore Roosevelt uh, to order an investigation of the methods by which food was prepared and packaged in the United States and eventually led uh, the U.S. Congress to pass the Meat Inspection Act and the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906. So again, a piece of literature creating actual changes in the way that we, uh, we prepare our food. Or, maybe even more relevant, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, uh, which, uh, as you probably know, uh, appeared originally as a series of essays in the New Yorker magazine before it was published in book form and led President Kennedy to ask his science advisory committee to look into her claims about the effects of pesticides and eventually led to uh, regulation of pesticides and the uh, prohibition of uh, DDT, at least here in the United States. Um, so there are these precedents that encourage us to believe in the power of the arts to uh, create fundamental changes in how we understand uh, our, our, um, our place in the world and how we regulate our behavior. Like Carson's, are we up here? Yes, okay. Like Carson's essays, which appeared in the New Yorker, so did Bill McKibben's essays uh, that eventually were published in 1989 as The End of Nature. And I don't know uh, how many of you, uh, aside from Rich, may have been aware of the threat of uh, global warming prior to the publication of Bill's book. Um, but this was really uh, the, the, the event which I think began the, publish, the public conversation about climate change in the United States. Uh, a few years later, uh, 2005, um, Elizabeth Colbert uh, published this book, Field Notes from a Catastrophe, which also originally appeared as a series of essays in The New Yorker uh, before it came together in this book. Now, Elizabeth Colbert's book uh, was reissued in 2015 with a lot of the information updated. And if I had to uh, recommend one book that, that I think tells the story of climate change uh, in a really uh, interesting and meaningful way, I would certainly recommend this book. Very, very well written. So we have these examples, uh, and of course we have Al Gore's um, The um, uh, Inconvenient Truth, which also came out in 2005 and encouraged that conversation even more. So 2005, it's been a dozen years now that we've been having this conversation about climate change, and there have been some effects, actually. Um, 
As of 2008, uh, I've got some figures here that come from the uh, Yale Program on Climate Change Communication, which had some polling done through George Mason University. But as of 2008, 62% of Americans described themselves as either very worried or somewhat worried about climate change. And even in the days following the most recent presidential election, 19% uh, of Americans considered themselves very worried about climate change. And that's a record. It's never been that high before. And I found this fascinating. 76% of Americans believe that schools should teach children about the causes, consequences, and potential solutions to global warming. 76%. This is a poll that was done in November after the elections. So there does seem to be a general sense among the American people that, yes, climate change is something that we ought to be concerned about. But I'm going to suggest that that doesn't go nearly far enough. So uh, Tony Lajewitz up, uh, up at Yale says that there are five key concepts that people need to understand about climate change. Scientists agree. It's real. It's us. It's bad, but there's hope. We're going to spend a little bit of time in the it's bad part today, and my, my goal is not to bring you way down, but to show you the preponderance of literature that really focuses on uh, the potential disastrous outcomes of climate change and to talk about that in relationship to the, to the art and literature that provides some sense of hope. So um, one of the most unsettling discoveries I've made directing a graduate program in Resilient and Sustainable Communities is this. The better people understand climate science, the more likely it is that they have felt compelled by the urgency of the situation to take inconvenient steps in their own lives, to make real changes uh, in what they're doing. Bill McKibben being one example. Um, he has had this wonderful life up in Vermont, writing books, raising his family, spending a lot of time hiking and skiing and that sort of thing. But the more, uh, the more he understood the science, or I guess the more uh, the science began to seem alarming to him, the less he felt that he had the luxury of living that sort of life. And he's since devoted himself through 350.org to pretty much nonstop organizing and activism. It's not the life he would have chosen, but it's a change that he feels the need to make. Another person who's felt the need to make these changes is uh, Kathy Moore, Kathleen Dean Moore, uh, who was until recently a professor at Oregon State University uh, and uh, the um, founder of the Spring Creek Project, which partners with the US Forest Service collecting ecological data from sites over a 200-year period, so long-term ecological studies. The more she became aware of the implications of current climate science, uh, the more disturbed she became. And eventually, uh, in 2013, she decided that she could no longer feel comfortable simply teaching uh, in college. So she resigned her position so she could devote herself full-time to climate activism. And in that same year, 2013, she asked Scott Slovic at the University of Idaho to join with her in publishing this uh, manifesto, uh, which appeared in Orion magazine. By the way, if you don't know Orion, you should. It's a remarkable magazine. And also published in uh, an academic journal, uh, Interdisciplinary Studies in Literature and Environment. And this was a call to writers. Um, and as Kathy said, for the sake of all the plants and animals on the planet, for the sake of intergenerational justice, for the sake of children, we call on writers to set aside their ordinary work and step up to do the work of the moment. 
which is to stop the reckless and profligate fossil fuel economy that is causing climate chaos. So she and Scott came up with this list of the ways in which writers might turn their craft to educating people about the climate crisis. And uh, these, are, these, are the, um, these are the categories. The drumhead pamphlet, some of you will recognize the Revolutionary War illusion there. Lay out the reasons why extractive cultures must change their ways. Um, the broken-hearted hallelujah. Make clear the beauty of what we stand to lose or what has already been destroyed. The witness. Tell the truths that have been denied or concealed. Go to the tar fields. Go to the broken pipelines. The narrative of the immoral imagination. Keep this one in mind as we move forward. Take the reader inside the minds and hearts of those who live with the consequences of climate change. The radical imaginary. Create an open space where new ideas can flourish. Imagine new life ways into existence. The indictment, the literature of outrage. How can we have allowed this to happen? The apologia, writing to the future, trying our best to explain, asking their forgiveness. So there are certainly other categories that we could create. And in some conversations that I had with Scott Slovic in preparing this talk, he suggested a couple that come to mind. One would be the science made plain, uh, and another would be gallows humor. Um, but this call to writers gave form to a conversation about the role of the artist in the age of climate change that goes far beyond the United States. In fact, the Indian writer Amitav Ghosh uh, predicts that Quote, when future generations look back upon the great derangement, that's what he calls this period, the great derangement, they will certainly blame the leaders and politicians of this time for their failure to address the climate crisis, but they may well hold artists and writers to be equally culpable, for the imagining of possibilities is not, after all, the job of politicians and bureaucrats. This is the context within which we've seen this eruption of literature in particular about climate change. Um, in fact, uh, some of you may have heard the term cli-fi, kind of like sci-fi, but, but climate fiction, which has really taken off since the term was introduced back in 2008. Um, there are courses in cli-fi taught in colleges and universities across North America and into Europe. It's very, very hot right now. If you go on the internet, go to uh, Goodreads and click on cli-fi, it'll take you to 133 novels um, and uh, you know, ready to order. You can click on them right there, Amazon, uh, the same sort of thing. But a review of that list makes something very clear. Uh, and that is that writers are much more interested in portraying a world wrecked by climate disruption than in any other approach. Uh, so as, as climate change and human population growth continue, writes one reviewer, cli-fi and post-apocalypse uh, have the power to scare us into action. And uh, while its disproportionate emphasis on dystopian futures may be useful in this respect, it also poses some serious problems. So now we get into the literature. Uh, given the fact that narrative momentum is generally sustained by suspense, and suspense generally requires some, set, uh, some sense of conflict, it probably shouldn't come as any surprise that people are interested in writing about dystopian futures. Uh, a couple of them that I wanted to start with take place in the desert southwest, where, of course, 
the shortage of water becomes key to, to how the narrative unfolds in, in this dystopian future. So we have uh, Paolo uh, Basigalupi, I have no idea if I pronounce that name right, uh, The Water Knife, uh, and Octavia Butler's The Parable of the Sower, both taking place in the Southwest. So Basigalupi's Phoenix businessman, they're, they're actually, um, in addition to shortage of water, water becoming more precious, more expensive than gasoline, the other thing that these books have in common, and many of the, the books in Cli-Fi have in common, is a real uh, separation between the haves and have-nots. In an age of increasing resource scarcity, those who can afford the resources and those who can afford to hire people to protect the resources are going to live very different lives than those who cannot afford that. And we see that uh, in the water knife. Um, so uh, in, in Phoenix, where the water knife takes place, the businessmen live in these Chinese-built towers that are actually kind of models of, of green design. They recycle water through ground-level living machines, resplendent with greenery and sculpted waterfalls. They create methane out of the residents' composts and waste, and they, they pump cool, clean air into these triple-filter apartments. Meanwhile, behind the tall windows of these beautiful apartments, uh, sh shrouded by the, the char of far-off forest fires and the dust of dead farms, the less fortunate people dismantle the abandoned neighborhoods of Phoenix for firewood or anything that might be traded for food or water. Um, the refugees moving across the landscape. And refugees, that's another common theme we see throughout this work, uh, are, are frequently victimized. Uh, in the case of the water knife, the refugees who receive the most attention are called Mary Perrys. They tend to be uh, fundamentalist Christians from Texas and Oklahoma who, as they uh, Tried, some tried to move east and found themselves uh, facing uh, great hostility from the folks in Louisiana and Arkansas. So many of them are now moving west, but they're uh, frequently being um, uh, killed for kicks or gunned down by militias. Uh, uh, we see state militias along the borders protecting the resources of the people in those states. Uh, so it's really um, to have a visualization, to have this, this very vivid picture of families of refugees moving across the landscape, of course, calls to mind John Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath and the power of that book to create this, this sense of compassion uh, for people who were uh, suffering and, and who really needed help. Uh, in these dystopian uh, books of the future, uh, the refugees are um, uh, either... Uh, victimized or put to work for, we see these corporate cities. One of the, the interesting things about uh, Basicalupi's book is that it feels familiar enough to make it more chilling. This is something that I've noticed. The further you go into the future, the, the less it feels familiar, uh, the more we can uh, distance ourselves from that and think, oh, this is an interesting story. But when we have these elements that, that feel familiar to us from the TV news or something like that, so Red Cross tents, FEMA, uh, FEMA personnel, uh, those at least who weren't needed to handle hurricanes on the Gulf, tornadoes in the Midwest, floods on the Mississippi, and seawalls collapsing in Manhattan. These sorts of scenes really uh, create the sense that, yeah, this could happen any time. Now, Octavia Butler's uh, version of the uh, post uh, 
or the dystopic Southwest takes place in Southern California, and it's slightly different. Um, rains come only every few years to Southern California. Tornadoes and blizzards have been sweeping through the Midwest. Cholera has broken out in the South, and epidemics of resurgent diseases, the kinds that most of us have been vaccinated for, uh, have swept through populations that can no longer afford immunizations. She describes walled estates, one big house and a lot of shacky little dependencies where the servants lived. A few neighborhoods still exist as Butler's novel begins with armed residents living behind makeshift walls, while the best qualified Californians compete for room and board in one of the emerging private cities owned by corporations that dominate farming and the selling of energy. But of course, the greatest horrors are what becomes of human beings in, in this scenario, the desperate, the raiders and the thieves, the powerful elites doing whatever is required to hold on to their resources. And soon, in Butler's novel, the refugees are spread out along abandoned highways, hoping somehow to get past the Oregon border guards. Again, my apologies for, for sharing with you these kinds of scenes that, that can hardly uh, help us feel hopeful, but it, it's part of the journey, uh, and so stick with me. Um, David Mitchell, who you may know oh, uh, from Cloud Atlas, wrote a book called The Bone Clocks. Let me go back for just a minute. I meant to have this, this picture showing during uh, part of my descri uh, description there. Wonderful uh, photograph by Beth Moon, uh, Diamond Knights. Um, so uh, The Bone Clocks by David Mitchell, author of Cloud Atlas, uh, is quite an ambitious novel. And in terms of the literary merit, it probably stands uh, above what we've already looked. In fact, one thing I didn't mention about uh, a novel like The Water Knife is that with all the gunfire and the explosion crackling through the novel, it feels like it was written uh, for Hollywood. And I wouldn't be at all surprised to see a movie like, or uh, a movie made from from books like that, which I think would be powerful, and would be concerning. And I want to get back to that tension uh, in a little bit. But uh, it's a novel that moves very briskly. It's a eco, eco thriller. I have heard it called. Um, a book like David uh, Mitchell's. Uh, the Bone Clocks is, has a little more texture, a little more depth, uh, moves through maybe a 50-year period uh, in these intervals. And the, the glimpse that David Mitchell gives us, um, he jumps ahead to 2043 at the end of the novel uh, and uh, focuses on a village on the coast of Ireland. And in 2043, the young people are amazed to hear about a time when electricity was available whenever you might want it. It just seemed like a fairy tale to them. Um, one of the other pieces that, that hit home about that was the, uh, the protagonist in that section uh, talks about how people of her age, and she was uh, in her 70s in, in 2043, had saved all of their pictures and that sort of thing on the internet. So when the, when the net went down in the, in the crash of 36, it was as if the, everybody suffered sort of a collective amnesia. Nobody had their, their uh, past records available to them anymore. But now, as I said, in her mid-70s, she finds herself, this, the protagonist, crying for the ice caps we melted, the Gulf Stream we redirected, the rivers we drained, the oceans we flooded, the species we drove to extinction, the pollinators we wiped out, the comforting liars we voted into office, all so we didn't have, all so we didn't have to change our cozy lifestyles. 
Although the novel ends with a bleak future, militias of local raiders suddenly forming to fill a sudden power vacuum, Mitchell offers some hope by enabling us to look back from a point still far enough in the future, 2043, that perhaps we can yet make a difference. One of the things that I had meant to mention earlier and, and I didn't is that living in the age of climate change means that there are already effects set into motion that we will experience the results of, you know. Um, so we have uh, uh, the, um, the loss of ice, ice shelves. We will have some sea level rise, certainly. We will have some more extreme weather, uh, that sort of thing. So that we will, be effect we will be experiencing some of these effects of global climate change, no matter what we do. But if we act now to reduce carbon emissions, to do what we can to sequester carbon from the atmosphere, we can mitigate the effects of climate change. That's the best we can hope for right now. Uh, but that's not a bad thing to hope for. It's certainly better than the alternative. So in general, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, the, the further in the future that uh, cli-fi fiction uh, is, the more room is left for us to view those catastrophes as a safe remove. Margaret Atwood's uh, 2003 novel, Oryx and Crake, this is the first novel of a trilogy, the Mad Adam trilogy, um, feels uh, far enough in a distance uh, that, that we can observe it uh, at, at this um, from a certain level of comfort. Uh, we get these glimpses of a time when the most restful sound the protagonist hears is the ocean grinding against airsats reefs of rusted car parts and jumbled bricks and assorted rubble. When the protagonist recalls his mother long gone sniveling about her grandfather's Florida grapefruit orchard that had dried up like a raisin when the rains had stopped coming, the same year Lake Okeechobee had shrunk to a reeking mud puddle and the Everglades had burned for three weeks straight, where the people lucky enough to live in walled compounds travel by train through the tackiest kind of plebe lands vacant warehouses, burnt out tenements, empty parking lots, sheds and huts put together from scavenged materials, sheets of tin, slabs of plywood, and inhabited by squatters. How did such people exist? He had no idea. Yet there they were on their side of the razor wire. A couple of them raised their middle fingers at the train, shouted something that the bulletproof glass shut out. The most frightening aspect of Atwood's future, though, is the fact that the world has been rearranged uh, by bioengineering experiments taken in response to a changing environment. Uh, the whole world is now one vast, uncontrolled experiment, she writes, and the doctrine of unintended consequences is in full spate. <laughs> Well, the power to scare us into action, of course, is, is too much for Hollywood to resist. And uh, so we've seen um, the emergence of movies now about climate change, which tend to get the science quite wrong, uh, but tend to pull people to the theaters much better than something like a documentary would do. And The Day After Tomorrow is probably the best uh, known of these. Uh, in case you didn't see the movie and in case the poster doesn't give it away here, uh, the uh, east coast of North America, actually all of northern North America, uh, is thrown into a sudden ice age. Uh, very sudden. I mean, within, I think, a, a less than a 24-hour period. <laughs> 
So the immediacy of the threat in this movie is built on an exaggeration uh, of, uh, of something that actually could occur at, at a much smaller scale, uh, a cooling that could take place in the north as melting uh, ice in Greenland dilutes the Gulf Stream and perhaps throws off the currents that right now keep uh, northern Europe, for example, much warmer than it would be without the weather uh, that's warmed by the Gulf Stream. But in this case, uh, the... Um, the Gulf Stream has been completely thrown off and we have an instant ice age moving in. Now, that instant ice age offers much more suspense than, a more, than the more gradual disruptions that we can really expect, um, periodic storm surges, water shortage, that sort of thing. Uh, and there's a particularly fresh irony, I just watched this film again preparing for this talk, in the scene of U.S. citizens escaping calamity by crossing illegally into Mexico. <laughs> With, with all their luggage crossing the, uh, the Rio Grande. So a little jiggling of the scientific principles provides the filmmakers with a way around the stubborn problem of climate change as a narrative mechanism being too slow, too abstract to create viable narrative momentum. We'll hear a little bit more about that uh, in just a, a couple of minutes. Now there is a risk of... Uh, of uh, linking legitimate concerns about climate change with blatantly unrealistic scenarios. Uh, but Tony Lajewicz suggests that in the end it may have been more useful than not. Uh, he told me, when we enter into artistic experience we're willing to suspend disbelief and entertain ideas that we might normally be opposed to. The Day After Tomorrow was probably the first fictional movie dedicated to having climate change as a core plot element. It took a fair amount of artistic license with the science, but it reached hundreds of millions of people in a way that no documentary ever has. And uh, in the research uh, that they did, uh, interviewing people coming out of the theater, we found that people were willing to follow along with and accept information about climate change because, because it had been conveyed in the form of a story. One of the other movies that uh, people like to talk about uh, when thinking about the way that artists are dealing with climate change is Interstellar. Christopher Nolan's movie that came out in, in 2014. And in this case, there's an urgent need to find other habitable planets because of the, the Earth's perilous decline uh, as a result of uh, climate change. By the time the movie takes place, some aspects of government have already collapsed. Uh, and uh, most major, major crops have been wiped out by blight. Gigantic dust storms sweep through the prairie on a regular basis. And one of my favorite things about this movie is that um, echoes of the last great anthropogenic environmental disaster are underscored by this documentary-style footage of elders talking about uh, the dust storms. And they might have been talking about, they might have been uh, our parents or grandparents talking about uh, the 1930s, uh, those dust storms. It really adds a, a veracity to the, to the film. Uh, early on, the protagonist of this movie, played, uh, of course, by Matthew McConaughey, um, is called to the local school to meet with his daughter's teacher and principal. Apparently, she's not been using the revisionist textbooks that exist at this point, and she actually believes that the moon landings occurred. Um, and as the teacher explains to the father, if we don't want a repeat of the excess and wastefulness of the 20th century, then we need to teach the kids about this planet, not tales of leaving it. 
This is this really chilling moment where we see revisionism in the, in the service of uh, ecological sanity. Uh, but, of course, the father's having none of it. Before he was a father, he was an astronaut. Uh, and he, <laughs> he insists that humans were meant to be explorers and pioneers, not mere caretakers of the earth. So these big stream catastrophes, all dressed up in uh, computer-generated imagery, are admittedly more exciting and more likely uh, to uh, be the way that climate change uh, affects uh, how popular culture is thinking about it. Uh, And while waking people up to the threats is important, too much emphasis can be detrimental, especially for children. Um, David Sobel, who wrote the phenomenal book um, Beyond Ecophobia, makes, uh, makes this point. What he had discovered as an educator was that frequently the young children that he worked with were so overwhelmed by global-scale environmental problems that they just wanted to, to hide from the reality. Um, what really happens, David asks, when we lay the weight of the world's environmental problems on an eight or nine-year-old, already haunted with too many concerns and not enough real contact with nature, exposure to problems that large and that abstract can turn children off from thinking about solutions, leading them instead to develop distancing techniques to cope. If we prematurely ask children to deal with problems beyond their understanding and control, we cut them off from uh, the possible sources of their strength. But it's not just children, I think, who seek to distance themselves from too much emphasis on the potentially catastrophic effects of climate change. Um, You know, it it, it, uh, happens to us, too. And that's one of the reasons that I find myself more drawn to the climate change uh, art and literature uh, that tends to highlight effects of climate change within a world that is familiar where uh, we can imagine it happening to us and not feeling like the end of the world, I guess. This, uh, this piece of art right here uh, by an artist named Swoon, Submerged Motherlands, was uh, based on uh, her experience of uh, hurricane, or Superstorm Sandy. And actually, the next novel I want to talk about is also inspired by that experience, uh, and it's The Odds Against Tomorrow by Nathaniel Rich. Um, I I might say that this is, uh, in my opinion, uh, the best novel that I've read about climate change. Um, So Odds Against Tomorrow uh, deals with the effects of another superstorm like Sandy on New York City. This one is a little more intense. And to my mind, the most iconic scenes of Cli-Fi come from this novel when the protagonist, Mitchell Zucker, uh, and a co-worker paddle through flooded Manhattan in a canoe. And uh, the passage I'm going to read veers from the gruesome. Uh, low blue flames dancing on the surface of the water, burning sewer discharge and pigeon corpus- corpses bobbing everywhere to surrealistically peaceful is when they float down the streets of Midtown and are reminded of the drawings made by early explorers of the Grand Canyon, the Colorado gushing between black vertical walls, the lone canoe in the foreground, its paddlers two insignificant specks. There are dangers aplenty, mostly from uh, desperate survivors, uh, but the, the folks in the canoe eventually find their way to aid workers and are taken in a very realistic scenario to a local uh, high school gym and, and registered and, and then placed in a FEMA village with FEMA trailers. Uh, the novel turns, actually, 
on their escape from the FEMA trailer, um, where life is by turns brutal uh, or simply inconvenient. Sudden violence, propane tanks exploding, uh, thefts, long waits for microwaved burritos, uh, kids playing with discarded syringe. Uh, Mitch, the, the main character who has become wealthy predicting disasters, finds his way to the flatlands, an area flooded so badly that there are no immediate plans to rebuild. He's told uh, they're saying they might let it go back to nature, wetlands restoration, to serve as a natural buffer against future storms. Mitch ends up laying claim to an abandoned bank tower in, the, in, the, uh, in, in these uh, flatlands and building a wall around it from a thousand pieces of debris, nearly every component with rough surfaces and ragged edges. You couldn't climb a wall like that. You couldn't even touch it. He also builds rainwater collection systems and plants vegetables in his raised beds, isolating himself even from the other pioneers who show up, watching over the wetlands from his tower. And I quote, across from the building on the other side of Flatbush Avenue lay a long marsh, a dense scrabble of destroyed trees and dried brush. It was two blocks wide and extended some six avenues long until it touched the sea. The entire acreage was clogged with trash and plaster and splintered shingles, which meant that the marsh had done its job. It had buffered the winds and the rising water. Now, this is a caricature of resilience, uh, and Rich knows that. Uh, he draws attention to it, observing wryly that this Canarsie Bank Trust building was a real castle. It even had a moat, being that uh, trash-filled wetlands around it. The effects of uh, climate change are even less obvious a threat in Barbara Kingsolver's novel Flight Behavior, which came out in 2012, and it captures the growing awareness of a disrupted world from the perspective of a rural Tennessee housewife. With no education beyond high school, her understanding of global warming uh, is determined mostly by what she hears on local talk radio. And it's only when scientists come to study a population of monarch butterflies that has mysteriously come to overwinter in the woods behind her house that the um, uh, protagonist, Della Robia Turnbow, finds her assumptions challenged. Now, the principal researcher who shows up is exasperated by the fact that the people uh, he finds living here are apparently unaware uh, that climate change is a reality and they think that it's still up for debate. So while he's being interviewed uh, for a local television station, uh, he explodes and, and this is what he says. What scientists disagree on now is how to express our shock. The glaciers that keep Asia's watersheds in business are going right away. The Arctic is genuinely collapsing. Scientists used to call these things the canary in the mine. What they say now is, the canary is dead. We are at the top of Niagara Falls in a canoe. We got here by drifting, but we cannot turn around for a lazy paddle back while you finally stop pissing around. We have arrived at the point of an audible roar. Does it strike you as a good time to debate the existence of the falls? Pardon me. Beyond Delarobia's own awakening, uh, there's this, an, a very important lesson here about uh, how progress in communicating climate science is hampered by the cultural divides in this country uh, that I referred to earlier. As she goes along with the, science, uh, with the scientists, first to observe and eventually to help out with their research, she appreciates how patiently they explain to her the science of butterfly migration. But she also understands that if they'd met her, waitressing tables in town, they would not have tried to draw her in. She can tell that from the comments they make about her neighbors and local businesses. 
and she can't help but compare their hiking boots, which cost as much as her husband's last paycheck, with the $6 boots she found at the thrift store, her first purchase for herself in over a year. This divide, that we've got to figure out how to get around to find common cause, uh, is, is something that I think Barbara King Sullivan really performs a service in, in drawing this to our attention. And uh, hopefully, uh, as we move forward from the events of the last uh, few months, uh, we're spending more and more time thinking about that. Um, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. Uh, so, so some people would say that the uh, dramatic engine of flight behavior has more to do uh, with, um, uh, with, with climate change, which again is too slow, too abstract to really function as the, the, the narrative momentum for a novel. Uh, I would argue instead that uh, the, the dramatic engine is Della Robbia awakening to the complexity of the world behind, beyond her struggle uh, to raise two children on not, not nearly enough money. But uh, King Silver has, always been, has also been criticized in this novel for trying to bring too much science in, and, and that slows things down. Um, there are other works of fiction that I want to talk about that, that very explicitly uh, function to make the science available to us, or at least um, talk about the limitations of uh, science in our own society. One of the more fascinating ones uh, is this little book, and it is little, it's, it's fewer than 100 pages. It's called The Collapse of Western Civilization, A View from the Future. And it was written in 2014 by two professors, uh, Naomi Oreskes of Harvard and Eric Conway of the California Institute of Technology. And it's a fictional history produced during the Second People's Republic of China, 300 years from now, looking back at the Great Collapse, which we're going through right now. A primary cause of the collapse, as analyzed uh, by these future historians, sounds all too familiar today. Um, so a key attribute of the period, this is our period, was that power did not reside in the hands of those who understood the climate system, but rather in political, economic, and social institutions that had a strong interest in maintaining the use of fossil fuels. Maintaining the carbon combustion cycle was clearly in the self-interest of these groups. So they cloaked this fact behind a network of think tanks that issued challenges to scientific knowledge they found threatening. Newspapers often quoted think tank employees as if they were climate researchers, juxtaposing their views against those of epistemologically independent university or government scientists. Meanwhile, scientists continued to do science, believing on the one hand that it was inappropriate for them to speak on political questions, or to speak in the emotional register required to convey urgency, and on the other hand, that if they produced abundant and compelling scientific information and explained it calmly and clearly, the world would take steps to avert disaster. Um, so this is, it's a terrific book. Again, less, uh, fewer than 100 pages. Uh, I would really, okay, we're getting away from the back. So I'm actually gonna jump ahead uh, just a little bit here. Um, and uh, um, so uh, one of the things that we're seeing now, of course, is documentaries appearing uh, all the time, several a year about climate change uh, now, uh, from An Inconvenient Truth to The Eleventh Hour with Leonardo DiCaprio, Chasing Ice, 
and now Before the Flood, also featuring Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, frankly, it's taken me a while to feel at ease with celebrities making the case for climate change awareness, but at this point, anything that draws anyone's attention to climate science is a victory. Uh, it's even making its way into cable television now. There's a new series uh, called Incorporated, actually uh, produced by Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, uh, about Milwaukee in 2074, uh, when cities are taken over by corporations because the government can no longer run them and, and other people live in the red zones outside the cities. One of the most interesting uh, art forms that I've seen emerge as artists try to uh, address climate change are these very short climate, climate change advertisements. Short pieces, uh, 60 seconds to five minutes, they're generally funded by nonprofit organizations or even governmental organizations. In the one I've pictured here, Greenpeace brought uh, the Italian composer Ludovico Lodi to the Arctic. It set him up with a uh, piano and microphones on a small ice flow, and he plays his haunting elegy for the Arctic as the glaciers behind him moan and rumble and periodically calve in the background. The great thing about these short films is they're a testament to what can be achieved in the digital age by people with easy access to technology uh, and, and this, just this creativity that is flowering as these pieces go viral without the need for commercial advertising. So um, there are also less virtual ways, of course, to express the reality of climate change. And even if we can't, if we don't have the resources to bring down pieces of a glacier uh, from Greenland, as Olafur Eliasson did, uh, bringing these pieces down so that the passers-by could watch them melt at COP21, um, or even if we don't have the organization, like the volunteers at the Tideline Project, to gather mussels, mussel shells from local restaurants and uh, glue them on fabric and wrap them around New York telephone poles, uh, suggesting the height of uh, sea rise, uh, maybe uh, artists can at least get some chalk and a line marker like Eve Mosier did and mark the 70-mile line around New York City at 10 feet above sea level. Uh, and if that's too much, there's always a can of spray paint uh, at the local hardware store. Even if these uh, examples of public art, community art, and graffiti um, still focus on the threats, what I do want to suggest is that uh, the future of arts may largely have to do uh, with design in the age of climate change, which is not to suggest that the uh, more traditional expressions of art are, are going to be unimportant, but that there's a real opportunity for artists to begin to think about redesigning society in a way that is sustainable and resilient. Um, let me catch up with my slides here really quickly. I, I want to make sure that we have uh, time to uh, have some questions here. Just a couple other examples. Oh, yeah, I do want to talk about this next one. So um, this is uh, an example from my hometown, which is Portland, Oregon, uh, of an organization called City Repair. And this is a citizens group. Uh, that gets together and identifies uh, intersections, among other things, that they want to revitalize. And this uh, inter intersection that we see up at the top here, this was a, a fairly uh, desolate uh, neighborhood, high crime neighborhood, not a lot going on. And the people at City Repair created this opportunity for people to create this beautiful painting at the inter intersection. Their first experiments were done, by the way, uh, uh, illegally, uh, but now Portland has made it easier for 
for them to perform these kinds of experiments. They brought people together throughout the neighborhood and bring them together periodically to repaint these intersection paintings. People now want to spend time there. There are sculptures at each corner of these intersections. Crime has gone down. Traffic has slowed down. People talk to each other. One of the more... Uh, uh, compelling uh, pieces of information uh, that I saw in a video about this was two neighbors who had lived three houses away from each other for 20 years had never met until they came out to be a part of uh, this process. And what I want to suggest is that Community resilience begins with getting to know each other. We live lives that are increasingly isolated by technology, whether that's the fact that we leave our houses in our cars and drive past our neighbors without talking to them, the amount of time we spend in our houses with our home entertainment systems, the amount of time we spend in our virtual communities sitting in our homes online. All of these things keep us from having the kinds of relationships that people in functional communities have with their neighbors. And to create resilient societies, resilient communities, we need that kind of connection. So one of the more uh, hopeful uh, signs that, that I've seen in, um, uh, in the last few years is the transition movement. Uh, some of you may know about this. It began in England and now is spread throughout the world. Uh, and the transition movement is based on uh, some very basic principles, nurturing positive visions, ensuring people uh, have access to good information, encouraging inclusion and openness, enabling sharing and networking, building resilience, matching inner and outer transitions, and self-organizing and decision-making at the appropriate level. So you can see, I think you can see from this, uh, how many transition towns there are uh, now around the world, 653 in the United States, 113 in Canada, 1,430, uh, I guess that's Western Europe in general. This is very exciting, people uh, coming together and trying to recreate community, recognizing that the changes made at the governmental level are essential, but perhaps not, not the whole picture. Uh, I had intended to talk a little bit about the ways that uh, we could begin to transform uh, our own communities, our, our own lives, that, that, that there are the, um, you know, the personal choices that we make, there are the political actions that we take, and there is the, the level of community building. But because we're running out of time, I'm just going to uh, jump ahead uh, to the last slide, which is a picture of my campus up at Green Mountain College, which has been uh, climate neutral since 2011. We've got, as you can see, solar panels. In the background, we've got a biomass plant up there that uh, burns locally sourced wood chips. Uh, the two uh, hoop houses that you see down there are uh, feature experiments in season extension, including heating water uh, through, through solar panels uh, and then running that water through tubes underneath the soil in the hoop houses to see how long into the winter can we grow crops, that sort of thing. The ingenuity that's going to be required moving deeper and deeper into this next age can itself be an art form, but we also need the art forms that inspire us, that sustain us, that give us the courage, that allow us to understand the people who get together to paint their streets are performing heroic actions. The people who create uh, opportunities for lending tools to their neighbors, that is heroic action as well. Too many of the stories that we see, even the more utopian versions, and I didn't get a chance to talk about those, frequently uh, 
feature larger-than-life heroes, but, but I don't think we're necessarily looking for larger-than-life heroes. I think that we're looking for the kinds of heroes that we can find living next door to us, across the street from us, or even in our own house. So I've gone too long and didn't get to talk about everything I wanted to, but I can't wait to uh, have an opportunity to talk with you. So I'm going to end it there and, and take your questions.